Uh, good evening, everyone. Welcome to our winter meetings, Friday night meetings. And uh, this evening, the subject we have is the Waldensian Anabaptist connection. Actually, as far as the literal connection is concerned, I don't think anybody was ever able to find any. But we'd like to know, look at it in the influence of the Waldensians and Anabaptists, how they influenced each other and how they did have a, make a big impact on each other. Lots and, of, yeah. Well, uh, Alvin Landis is who he's born now. Yeah, he's not saw too. Oh, okay. okay, somebody needs to be muted, I believe. <laughs> okay, uh, Raymond? Yeah. Did you want to lead us in prayer before we go into the subject? Okay. <clears throat> Our Father in heaven, we do want to thank you for your loving kindness to us in calling us out of sin into your marvelous light. We thank you for the gift of salvation. We are unworthy of it, but we claim it by faith. We ask that you would just bless our discussion this evening as we look into history and the things that took place in the past that can be an encouragement to us and a confirmation to our faith. Help us to properly understand history and benefit from it and um, share it with others. Just bless our discussion this evening and may each be edified and upheld on our faith. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you, Brother Raymond. Uh, I'd like to look at the original spread of Christianity before we get into the rest of the subject. <clears throat> and uh, I have it listed here as Jewish Christians, and we read about that in the Bible, how that after Pentecost, the Jews from <clears throat> Parthia, Media, Elam, Babylon, Cappadocia, and other places, joined the Jews in Judea who believed in Jesus, were believers, and uh, those were basically all Jewish, which uh, would find their ancestry back to Abraham, circumcision, and wore beards. And then next we have the Greek Christians. After Paul's conversion and Peter's visit to Cornelius, Hundreds and eventually thousands of Greeks from all over Alexander, former realm. Greek merchants, lawyers, Greek doctors, educated Greeks, Greeks given to profound thought, atlistic Greeks, Greeks used to idolatry and total abandoned immorality. And uh, it's interesting that we have our New Testament, it was originally written in Greek. Greek masters and slaves repented, believed, and got baptized. And then the, then the, the influence was basically centered in the Hellenistic regions of Syria, Egypt, and Asia Minor. Paul wrote his letters in Greek, and the rest of the New Testament, if not originally conceived in the language, was soon known only in Greek texts. So we have the Greek world language, and... Uh, and a lot of the spreading of the gospel was in the Greek influence. And then the next thing that came up was the Latin Christians. The best, as the, one influ the Greek influence declined, the Latin came on stronger. And as you're familiar with the scriptures, are the Paul letters of Rome and the Roman church, the Roman apostolic church was established in Rome. Uh, the Romans, the the Jews from Rome, actually the ones came from Jerusalem to Rome, started the church there, and they spoke Latin. I often wondered, you know, exactly how they could spread the gospel if they didn't have Bibles. There's very few, and what they had was in Latin, and only the more educated people could read it. Didn't have Bibles like we had today. So I had to conclude probably the uh, educated people who could read Latin probably verbally passed the gospel on uh, in Rome. And then, of course, we have the different ones in different places where the Jewish influence was and, and also the traders were. Uh, 
we have also these writers that come out of there, the choosing Greeks and following Christ. The Latin Christians centered in Carthage and Rome came such inspired thinkers as the Bishop of Clement, Rome, Mark Felix, Tertullian, Latin Christians carried the gospel throughout the far reach of the Roman Empire to the Celts in Britain, Ireland, Spain, and Portugal, and in France, and basically spread all over Europe. Now, what I'd like to think of now is the Church of Rome. We, and most of us are familiar with the, the uh, persecuted believers in the catacombs. And one writer claims he believes that's where the, the, the what we know today as the Waldensians came out of that persecution. They were driven underground in the, in, and hid in the caves or mines underneath there, trying to get away from persecution, and then were driven out of there and followed the mountain ranges up through Italy. This is one man's conclusion how the uh, Waldensian moment started. But it seems from everything I can gather that the, the people known as the Waldensians were a spin-off of the Church of Rome. That's the only thing that makes any sense. It's like you got a puzzle with a lot of pieces missing, and that's what I had. And what I, the research I have been able to do on that always points back, the only origin could be Rome. That's the only thing that makes sense. Another thing that's interesting about this situation is that in the year of A.D. 50 was the beginning of the church in Thessalonica, which would have been the Greeks and the church of Rome, about the same time, a few years in variation of that. And uh, later on, in 1540, we have the count in Martyr's Mirror, how the Thessalonican believers made contact with the, our Anabaptist forefathers in Europe or in in the general area of uh, where they were established uh, north of Switzerland, and uh, how they sat down and discussed all scriptures and decided that they were brethren because they believed the same. But what I want to look at is the fluence the Waldensians had on the Anabaptist moment. Now, in my writings, it says here that the Anabaptist moment came out of nowhere, but I don't quite agree with that because it's obvious that the fluence of the Waldensians was all over Europe. A lot of people don't realize that, but according to one writer, he says they were up to 800,000 strong and were in every, just literally in every country in Europe. So the influence of the Waldensians spreading the gospel was everywhere. And what kind of enhances this even more is that the fact that some of the same names that were listed in the persecution of the Waldensians were later came up among the Anabaptists. And some of these names are common names. I'm just sharing some of this for the sake of the others who never heard the Anabaptist stories. Some of these names is Troyer, and that's a common Amish name. And uh, one of the other ones is uh, Bucher, that's one of my wife's family name, and Mayer, that's one of my family names and newcomers an old uh, old Mennonite name, and Rife is another one that's very common. And there's a few other names that are not so common found today. So the fact that the same names were found among the Waldensians, according to the records of their persecution, was also found among the Anabaptists, makes you wonder if they were not, if the Anabaptists later on, as they came in the general area where the Waldensians were, that the Waldenses hadn't really sowed the seed, which spread the Anabaptist moment that started in Zurich, which we're part of today. I'm pretty sure there's a connection that way. As far as a little connection, I don't think anyone has ever found one. There's some people that come with up with the idea of a lineage, and I think that's focus. I don't think there's anything to that. I don't think it exists. Some of them claim the lineage came through... through uh, <coughs> through, I think, uh, Diedrich, no, yeah, Man of Simons, through Diedrich Phillips. But that takes you back to the Munsterites, and the Munsterites were a cult. They were never part of the true church. The Waldensians always rejected them. So the idea of getting a lineage, I don't think that's, that's not important. But I see a spiritual connection in my research between the Waldensians and Anabaptists. 
because they believe the lie. I have a lot of information here on the Valdensis, and the reason I have all the interest in there is because it appears that my forefathers might have been Valdensis. The evidence is quite strong, but not absolute, but it does appear that way. And I often wondered, you know, who are these people and what's the story of them? So I got a lot of books together. I have some books that were written in old ancient English, hard to read because of the English terms and spelling we're not used to. And I read about everything I could get up, get on them. And, then, and all, everything I read pointed to one thing. They believed in definite conversion. They believed in separation from the world. Their dress was the dress of the common people, and they were evangelical, too. They were concerned about the souls of men, as you well know. To have a population of 800,000 Waldenses, they had to be evangelical. A lot of people don't want to accept this, but I believe this is true and correct. I don't see any reason for them to be otherwise. And we know that our forefathers were that way, too. And that's one reason I felt it swept over Switzerland and in no time it was over in Austria and over in France and everywhere. Now, the Waldensians, uh, which the Catholics call them that, and they didn't call themselves that, they claim themselves that they, they know nothing of ever being Catholic. They said that they have the handed down faith from all the way back. Even in the 9th century, they were not a new group. They were already an old group existing. Well, the Catholics kept claiming that they are the old ritual church, and that made a problem for them because here come the Waldenses along, and, well, yeah, we, they, they were ancient. They go back to time immortal. They don't even know how old they are. But the information that comes out of the Catholic themselves, they grudgingly admit it appears they could have gone all the way back to the Waldensians, and they're at least as old as Conestine. That takes you back to the year 300. And they caused a problem for the Catholic Church because they were at least as old and older than they are. So they really persecuted them. And a lot of people have no idea how bad they were persecuted. They practiced Germanite on another resident in the valley. And I read the stories about, I think it's seven valleys. And at the time, these books were written, where only three valleys were inhabited by Waldens. The other four had been wiped out by persecution. And I have the picture of the valleys. I have the drawings of it, and I read all that. And what they've done is when they get into those valleys, they try to get everybody they could catch, and they either had a choice to convert, convert to Catholicism or die. And uh, and that's what happened to them. They literally wiped it out. If you didn't give up your faith, you were dead. And as far as abuse, it makes the persecution of Anabaptists look like child play. They literally wiped them out, men, women, wives, children, girls. It, there was nothing they didn't do to those people that was the human person could do another to somebody's body. They didn't care what they'd done. These people were horrible treated. And that's one reason that the Waldensians were tempted to join the reform group because then they no longer practiced non-resistance because their valleys usually became very narrow as the river went to the end of the valley. It was very easy to defend. Uh, 500,000 men could hold off uh, 10,000 men because it was so hard to get in the valleys and the mountains were so high, the pass was so steep they couldn't get in. And uh, so they were tempted. And as far as we know, there is no evidence of a connection between the Waldensians, literal connection, and the Anabaptists. Because it seemed in the same year, in 1541, when the uh, Cecil Nikons made contact with their Anabaptist forefathers, they were in the process of joining the reform group, and after that they were no longer a force in history that amounted to anything. But I believe the influence and the sowing the seed of the Waldensians left left an impact that we are influenced by today. The other interesting thing about the Waldensians is, is that, or I mean the Anabaptists, is, there is no real Anabaptist uh, or I should a true Anabaptist group in Europe today that I could that I'm aware of. Only the ones that were willing to pay the price of uh, moving on to America and to try to keep the faith. It seems it's always been that way down through history. Those that really were serious about what they believed 
were the ones that stood the test. We uh, we also are aware of, of the, as they spread out, they went into areas like in Austria. Uh, I believe the Hutterites are a spin-off of that. It appears that way when I researched the Hutterites, they're a spin-off of that. They went into Holland, and from Holland they went into Russia, and they were spread all through different countries. They were in France. The Waldensians were there. They were followers of Peter Waldo, which came on the scene about the year 1100. He was not the origin of the Waldensians, but he was also a person who influenced the spread of the gospel. He uh, did a quite a job. He was a <coughs> excuse me. They called his people the Poor Man Alliance because he was a rich merchant and gave gave all his property away and and, and became destitute and taught the gospel. He had a crucified vision of living for Christ alone. I've often wondered if part of our problem in America is that we are not surrendered like they were over there. But when it cost everything, even their life, they they were really committed. It seems that that we in America having an easy life makes it easy for us to uh, compromise our faith. And different ones in Europe did that to a disaster event. There's a lot of things here about, uh, and another thing a lot of people are not aware of here is that the differences between the uh, Anabaptist and the connection we have one to the other. Now, uh, the Anabaptist group, as we know it today, our forefathers, came out of the Reformation and desired to have something more biblically sound. But a lot of people are not aware that the, they were a thousand years apart, a thousand miles apart, and didn't really have a clear connection to the Anabaptists at all. I mean, the Waldenses, and they didn't have a clear connection. <coughs> the uh, <coughs> people of Europe, and, and a lot of people aren't aware, are black hats and Broadfall plans are actually European. A lot of people don't realize that. The European culture was quite different than the Jewish culture and the Greek culture, and there was a, they were quite spread apart in their culture and way of doing. And uh, it's interesting how that the Christian faith can can reach over all boundaries, all people everywhere, and bring them the united into one faith. I have a little bit more of the Waldensian that I was not aware of. Uh, they have some expression of the different ones in in Turban. Uh, Turban is where that in the end of Po Valley, in the end of Po Valley, is where the Waldensians were last in those valleys. And uh, when I was doing research, I found uh, I found my people names in right at the border. That's what made me think of they very possibly might have been from there. But they said there was a bishop there. His name was Marco Renico, and and he lived in the town. That, and he was in that town, town of Turin, and he strongly encouraged the Waldensians. And he was one of the ones that, but he was not a Waldensian himself. It says the Prince of Savory, who had the longest dealings with them, they could always assert without fear of contradiction the uniform of their faith from father to son through time immoral, even from the very age of the apostles. And we have it to Francis one of France, who said in 1544, their confession is which we have received from our ancestors, even from hand to hand, according to their predecessors of all time in every age had taught and delivered. It says a few years later, the princess ever, they said, let your highness consider that this religion in which we live is not a mere, our religion of the present day, our religion discovered from the first time only a few years ago, as our enemies falsely pretend, but it is the religion of our fathers and our great-grandfathers, our forefathers and our predecessors, still more remote. It is the religion of the saints of the martyrs, the, conf the confessors and of the apostles. This was a statement made uh, related to a king in France. 
Okay, I wasn't going to go in a whole lot of detail here, but <clears throat> I was wondering we might like to have an open discussion. I don't claim to have all the answers here, but does anybody have any questions they'd like to ask or have a discussion on some of these things? Is there any any history on the early churches that are that are mentioned in the New Testament, like the Corinthians and the Romans and the Ephesians, Philippians, and so on? Is there any history about whether how long those churches actually were faithful until they until they drifted away? I think the only one we have is the Thessalonian church, and they claim that one existed back all the way to the 1500s, I believe, because they were here in uh, in Europe when they made contact with some of the Anabaptists. And I believe was it was in Bohemia. I believe, I'm not sure. That's the only one it says how long they... I don't know. Maybe somebody else has some information. Well, I don't have, I don't have, uh, I was just, in uh, Broadbent's book, The Pilgrim Church, it has a timeline, uh, but the thing I found interesting was uh, how soon after the Apostolic Church in, in, one nine, in uh, AD 197, Tertullian, one of the, excuse me, one of the so-called Nicene Fathers, had the first clear reference to infant baptism in his writings. Hmm, that means that means he must have been after the year 300 then. Now that was in AD 197 already at that point in time that they had uh, well, there had been some was practicing infant baptism. Where did right, they get their infant baptism from? Well, see that that was probably uh, this is, of course, you know, my assumption is that it was before uh, the Council of Nicaea that infant baptism was being practiced already. Well, according to this, it would have been a hundred and you know over a hundred years in practice already. But uh, so it was not maybe not necessarily it wasn't necessarily a new thing. It was just uh, that's when church and state became uh, one and the same. And well, that would have that would have uh, happened during uh, when Constantine, the Roman emperor, when when he legalized Christianity, which was between the third and the fourth centuries. Yeah, and, uh, I think that was then. That's where the Catholic Church started from, and he legalized Christianity. And the whole membership, I mean, the whole population was was uh, was was included as a part of the church. You know, they were just ushered in by the hundreds and thousands, without much proving, if any proving. And the church dropped well, it real I, fast. I was going to say it may not have been uh, necessarily the uh, start of the Catholic Church, but it was. The start of it as a uh, as part of, as the government because it was uh, here in uh, the timeline gives that Cyprian Bishop of Carthage. This was somewhere between 258 taught that there is no salvation outside of the Catholic Church, hmm. and. In 207, there was there was two names, Perpetua and Felicitas, are martyred for being Montanists, although still members of the Catholic Church. So it gives uh, gives us a little history there. And of course, this is you know something I didn't research. Uh, but that there was already, uh, because do you think that if the if the uh, churches hadn't somewhat apostatized from the apost apostles' doctrine, do you think they could have incorporated church and state? 
Well, my records show here, and that's when it became the church at Rome. They might have had trying it experiment otherwise. But it mm-hmm. says Sylvester, Bishop of Rome, in the time of Conestine, and he was in 314 to 336, that he was the bishop of the Papal Rome. So apparently the Roman church might have been in ready being established earlier than that, according to what you're reading. Well, I just, and, and some of these, I, and I don't know where the locality of some of these people that is written, uh, but there were, there appears to have been, uh, maybe, uh, power, well, some power struggles prior to that, and, and once, uh, it was incorporated or legalized and and accepted and it was that's that's when it decimated even much faster well uh, one thing early on in the Roman Empire that you were supposed to reckon all the different gods you know you could pretty believe the gods you wanted but you had to recognize all the others too and it seemed that somewhere down the line the process they thought because Christianity was spreading, they decided to make their, their that their religion of the Roman Empire. You even have stories now how Conestine supposedly got converted and then he promoted that belief in the empire. But church and state could never function scripturally together because they had nothing in common. And infant baptism usually was part of the getting the people to become part of the state church. That's why they demanded that the children be baptized. So everybody was part of the state church. And of course, it was all the ideas to get everybody part of the church, the state and church together. Okay, any more thoughts or questions about that? That's an interesting can, can we Can we see how Satan changed his, his tactics? He tried to make life so hard for the Anabaptists with persecution that was going on and, and killing people and making life very hard for them. But often that caused the faith to spread. And sometimes, uh, quite often, people that saw how faithful they were and, and uh, the testimony that they left, they, they became Anabaptists themselves and defeated the, the purpose, that they defeated the desires of the persecutors. And uh, then he changed his tactics and legalized Christianity, making it much easier. No more persecution, you know, and just opened the door for anybody to come in, become a member of the church. And but that that was that was uh, like a death blow to the true church. They they couldn't survive uh, mixing the state in with the church. Never works. Never will. Well, the, the the testimony I heard that they were Christians, so-called, but they lived no different than anybody else. They were all right. they were drunkards, were part of the church, prostitutes were part of the church, and on and on it went. <laughs> Even though well, they, they tried were, to have some order, but it still wasn't. Yeah, they were never they were never converted. Even no, everybody was part of the church, no matter what kind of person he was. There's one other thing. Uh, one other thing I just uh, was in regards to the doctrine of the Waldensians, which I found. Of course, this uh, this was just one man's opinion, but uh, uh, and it, I'll read it. It says it said apart from the Holy Scriptures, they had no special confession of faith or religion, nor any rules, and no authority of man, however eminent was allowed to set aside the authority of Scripture. Yet, throughout the centuries and in all countries, they confessed the same truth and had the same practices. They valued Christ's own words in the Gospel as being the highest revelation, and if ever they they were unable to reconcile any of his words with other portions of Scripture, while they accepted all, they acted... They acted on what seemed to them the plain meaning of the Gospels. Following Christ was their chief theme, and 
in keeping his words, imitating his example. The Spirit of Christ, they said, is effective in any man in the measure in which he obeys the word of Christ and is his true follower. There's more to it, but I'll stop there. So it was uh, how they were for, and we don't know exactly how long, but uh, and how long they stayed true to the teachings, but they were not necessarily by a but I what I read an organized group, but where they had uh where they had rulers or the uh yeah, like the Catholic church. Yeah, well uh, there's one thing about that that a lot of people aren't aware of. There were lots of variation among the so-called Waldenses and what they believed, too. A lot of people aren't aware of that. The true Waldenses, the true believers, and that led to their undoing. That's one reason that the uh, Reformed Church was able to persuade them because their lack of proper leadership. And their structure wasn't strong enough. And and that that is probably, you know, you're probably right there. That was uh, some of the... That's what took them down, the lack of leadership. See, for us, it's the same way. The structure, <clears throat> the uh, charity-type moments, which have nothing for standard structure and the church authority, uh, never last long because they're not able to deal with problems. And uh, actually, the church having structure and having standards so that people know what they stand for and having authority to deal with problems, what makes the church being able to function under any situation. You know, it's a, it's a church that strength, their unity, and the, and the ability to deal with, with members who are out of order or who have fallen away. If you, if you can't deal with your problems, you don't last long. Even the military has structure, and that's a structural order that that that's that's where their strength lies in the church it needs to be the same way the church must have the authority and be able to discipline and be able to correct situations and the Waldensians lost that and then the other thing is that a lot of people don't realize there was a lot of variations in Anabaptists there's a lot of variation in Waldensians while some are real true to the scriptures some are not as true to the scriptures and uh, so the idea of looking back in history and finding things perfect, you just don't. There's individuals. No, they haven't. Go ahead. That's right. Yeah, that, you're, that's right. There, you know, there's there was no uh, no situation that was perfect. Uh, so yeah, it's in the sense it didn't have some needs. Had right. some things that they needed. And that's what I see. We have Waldensian groups, some of them. We had the Munsterites. They were a cult. And that's why Opie Phillips got baptized there, because he thought they were the true believers. He didn't know that. Well, then he, in turn, being sincere, ended up baptizing Mena Simons. And Mena Simons, then they questioned his baptism because he was baptized. He had a heretic's baptism down the line. But Mena Simons decided not to be concerned about it. He was a true believer, so was opium, and he was baptized. But the people that baptized were not true. They were a cult, and he didn't know any better. And a lot of those turmoil that we often don't think of, they faced it too. The reality is, like you mentioned about the Waldensians, our strength lies in our discipleship, following the Word of God to the best of our understanding. And there's nothing that is higher than that. And you'll find the people that hold true the longest are always those who make an issue. Oh, we claim we believe, okay, then if you're really a true believer, you also obey. You obey the word to the best of your understanding. And that was the strength of the Anabaptists and the Waldenses who were faithful. Okay, any more thoughts or questions? <coughs> I have a, a writing here. I don't know who wrote it, but, uh, well, yeah, it does say John Risser here. I don't know who that was. 
but I don't know even where I, where I got it, but I just found it a few days ago. It says here that the genius of the Anabaptist movement was not a succession of persons, but a succession of doctrine. Some historians have tried to make a genealogical connection between the Apostolic Church and the Mennonite Church today, but to no avail. This confirms the fact that the true Church of Jesus Christ is perpetuated only by those who are personally committed to New Testament teachings. The true church will be perpetuated by Mennonites only when they are committed to maintain the clear New Testament teachings on separation from the world and conformity to Christ. Today there is a, a subtle problem that is deteriorating the sound doctrine of the Mennonite church. We want to identify the problem and urge that as, as brethren we would take steps toward recovery. <clears throat> That's the first paragraph of this writing. I thought this pretty, puts it pretty good. The true church of Jesus Christ is perpetuated only by those who are personally committed to New Testament teachings, not not through their connection with each other. That personal, uh, that succession of persons is, is not is not what makes the church continue on. It's is is anybody that is a part of it, their their commitment to following the teachings of the New Testament. Right, and, and uh, the thing is, the Catholic Church claimed that very baptismal secession. Are you aware of that? Yeah, yeah, I heard I heard that long ago already. Yeah, and and then they have other Mennonite groups that want to claim a lineage, you know, a lineage passed on, baptismal lineage and secession of baptism and so on. And I think that that puts them in a, a sphere of false security. You know, some people feel that if there was a part of a member of a certain church, they're guaranteed to go to heaven. I don't believe that's the key. The key is if you don't obey God, I don't care what church you are, you're outside of the will of God. Yeah, you have there's, to obey there's, God to have be justified. There's there's no exceptions to that. It's on God's terms and not on the on, not on the terms that we try to imagine are, are there. But what God has established. I see in different groups they claim to be the one and true church and what it done to their groups. It had a bad, bad side effect. In some groups they came very worldly and they justified their worldliness. But we're still the church, they'd say. That's just another type of Calvinism like once saved, always saved. A false security. There's no security out of being obedient to God's word because that's what's going to judge us on the last day. Nothing else is security. It's a false security. And different groups, they claim that it affected the church in a lot of ways and usually made them less scriptural and oftentimes they end up becoming corrupt and tolerating things that were destructive to them. Well, what, just uh, one thing I was thinking of is uh, if we, in looking back in history at the Catholic Church, can't we see some of those, uh, we might say some of those same lines of thinking amongst ourselves uh, maybe not and uh, not to that degree, but some of those uh, some of the the same types of thinking where that you know they're only the people within the Catholic Church could be saved, and and uh, you know they were. Uh, now, of course, this is different. They were baptized as children, but just being a member of the church was, and going through the motions, confessing to the priests and such. That was a uh, that was their security of their supposed security of salvation. And are there some things amongst us that that tend to uh, fall in some of those same lines? Uh, you can make all kinds of false securities. People do that. 
But if, like I mentioned earlier, there's no security other than being a child of God and being obedient to God. The, the Jewish people had that problem, and Jesus was here. They said, we, we be Abraham's seed, or we are Moses' disciples. And Jesus said, if you would be the disciple of Abraham, you would do the works of Abraham. You would follow the deeds and, and, and live like, like Abraham lived. But they they tried to kill him. They were they were murderers. They were not following Abraham's faith at all. One thing that I had noticed when I was looking back across some of this was the, the fact that they viewed the church as anyone that was willing to look at the New Testament scriptures or, or the teachings of the apostles, and um, that's who they considered the church. There, there wasn't the thing like we have now of, of all kinds of different denominations. It was either you were committed to following what the Bible said or else you weren't. And and those that were committed to following what the Bible said was who they considered the true, the true church. So the emphasis was not on a certain denomination, but rather on the teachings of the New Testament. Right. And, and in that... In that regard, there were several times where they would commune amongst different groups because there was different groups that held pretty much the same values, and so they would commune amongst themselves even though they weren't, say, of the exact same group. Because... Because the emphasis was on on following the Bible, not following one specific group's leader or anything like that. Right, right. It, it wandered me already, you know, the, the seven churches in Revelations chapter 2 and 3, uh, wonder, they were quite different. They had quite some diversity. Some were, some were very not, very spiritual and, and sound in the faith. And others had had false doctrine and, and lost their first love and were spiritually dead. So, uh, I wonder, often wonder, man, what for relationship did those churches have with each other? With, with such differences, you know, how how could they recognize each other in light of some of those their differences? I don't know if you have any history on that or not, but they were all all churches at one time, true churches. I think it was the seven churches of Asia, I believe. Is that right? How that's termed? Yeah. Yeah. So they would have been spin-offs of the apostolic churches that Paul probably established some of them at least. But that doesn't answer my question. And your question, we want to repeat that, make sure I got it clear. Well, uh, what for relationship did they have with each other? Did they recognize each other and work together and so forth? Or, or, or were they, did they uh, sever their fellowship when, when there was false doctrine that kept, came in and different things like that? I don't think we have anything on that, do we? Well, well I don't know. The writings of Eusebius, the writings of Eusebius might uh, uh, might give some on that because uh, I was just I because uh, there was uh, I haven't read that in a while but there was a uh, I would have said there was a variety of different uh, whether there was a, uh, up until the assimilation or uh, to the tolerance of the, Christ, the Christian religion, there was 
there was a few different, uh, according to the writings of Eusebius, that there was a few different uh, uh, teachers that uh, stood up and became, uh, yeah, taught taught uh, false doctrines. Uh, I was just uh, looking through here quickly if I can, uh, but but then but you know how they uh fellowship together i'm not sure if that really uh if that really is uh mentioned a whole lot I hadn't thought about that, but maybe I have a Josephus book maybe I could uh, search that out sometime and See what I could find. Maybe he would have some history on that, on on those churches. There was, I mean, there. Were, what I remember, uh, there were some. Uh, there was some controversy among some of them and uh, followers of. Uh, Might have been the Montanists and uh, some of the. Uh, Martianites and that they may have different, different, uh, a few different heresies amongst the early churches. Right. Uh, even even in the apostolic times, um, it's brought out that they, there were some that would follow uh, specific leaders as opposed to following the, the principles behind what was taught. And I get that out of the Corinthians where it says, Now this I say that every one of you saith, I am of Paul, I have Apollos, and I have Cephas, and I have Christ. So, you know, they... There, there was some uh, back and forth even then as to who was their leader and who they who they followed. Right in Corinthian church, they had some struggle with that. Some said they were Paul, others were Paulus, and others were Cephas, mm-hmm. and uh, that was that was uh, that was a misleading argument. Yeah, and I don't know if it was just strictly the Corinthian church that had that problem or if there was others at large. I mean, if there was others as well. I mean, the Corinthian church could have definitely been the worst case scenario, but it could have also filtered into some of the other churches as well. Right. Yeah, there was... uh... And uh, this is, of course, just uh, uh, from one man's uh, viewpoint, such as the uh, different leaders that had uh, uh, stood up and claimed uh, to be somebody, but then there was the the Ebionites and uh, and a few others that... uh, I'm just looking through here to see if I can find any of those, but yeah, it, that there were some that, uh, yeah, unfortunately, uh, turned aside from true doctrine and and taught uh, taught what they maybe we might say they taught what they wished to teach. But again, that uh, I guess that's not for us to for us to judge. We weren't there and don't know the don't know all the truth. Right. We don't we don't really need to know that either. You know. Right.
Well, a lot of the early church history is uh, not uh, well recorded. I guess most that we have would probably be in the Bible. And there's not an awful lot of that also. Apparently God didn't see it to be all that important or there would probably be more of it in the Bible. We have a lot of Old Testament church history. Yeah. You know, about the nation of Israel, how they started and, and how they were perpetuated and and how they fell, fell away and came back again. And But as far as the New Testament churches, not, not, not a lot of history. Well, actually, in the Old Testament, shows you the nature of man. Yeah. Some of the actions in the Old Testament makes me think of Mennonites when, they, when Samuel... When the people said they want a, want a king to be like the people around us, nations, which means people. And that was typical. They were drawn also to the world around them. And, and the things of worshiping idols and things like that, that was part of their problem. They were influenced by the people around them. And it's the same way today. The people we associate with much will have an influence on us. the way it works. Okay, any more questions? If not, I guess we'll call it an evening. Uh, next Friday night, we'll have the story of the, Rus the Russian Mennonites, how they compromise their faith for the wealth, for wealth and the terrible results. Chester Reaver's going to have that talk. And uh, what number is tonight going to be on? 751. Will the, can you put the rest in order that I can just put it on if people ask? Yep, yep, they'll go in order go after that. One, two, three, all the way down through. Yep. Starting with 751. Yep. Okay. 7, 1, 2, 4, 3, 2, 0, 2, 0, 9, and then enter 751. Okay, now my pen is just writing they always do it when I need them okay you said 751 yeah get it right here so then uh, next Friday night be 752 yeah and then the next one would be 753. Which one is? <laughs> Alrighty, I guess we'll call it an evening. Thank everybody for coming on. And you all have a good evening. Yeah. Yeah, and you. Yeah.